When I was a younger Christian, I uh, was involved in a discussion one time with an older Christian about an activity that I was engaged in that he felt was sinful. Looking back on it, I'd have to agree with him. And uh, he presented an argument to me, which uh, at the time had some force. He said, suppose the Lord were to return and uh, find you doing that thing. What would he say to you? I'm not sure that that had a great deal of impact as a deterrent, because as I recall, I went right on doing the things that I had been doing before, but I certainly had less joy in doing them after that. And that question has stayed with me. It's a question I'd like to ask you. What would Jesus say to you if he caught you smoking pot? What would Jesus say to you if he found you uh, drunk in a singles bar? What would Jesus say to you if he caught you in an X-rated movie? What would Jesus say to you if he caught you in bed with someone else's husband or wife, caught you in the act of adultery? What would he say to you? Well, fortunately, we don't, uh, we're not left in any doubt about what he would say because that actually happened once in Jesus' life. The story is told in John 8. And if we want to know what Jesus would say to you, if he happened to catch you in the act of sin, I believe this is what he would say. Would you turn with me to John 8, please, the first 11 verses of that chapter. Now, when some of you uh, read this passage this past week, you probably noted that in the New International Version, or the New American Standard Bible, there's a footnote or a side note to the effect that this text is not found in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts. And that's true. It isn't. Even the most conservative evangelical scholars are convinced that this this story should not appear in the Gospel of John. The language is not John's language. It doesn't even sound like John. The whole story seems to be somewhat disjunctive when you read it. You wonder why it was placed in this particular location. And, as the footnote points out, almost none of the older, more reliable manuscripts contain this story. And when they do, there's usually an asterisk along, uh, alongside to indicate that uh, its inclusion is in doubt. And that may come as a shock to some of you that uh, were reared on the King James Version. and You read through John 1 through 8, 1 through 11, and, and felt that this, uh, this was, a, was a story that John told, but apparently it was not. It was included much later. Well, what can we make of it then? Well, for myself, I think this is a rare example of an extra-biblical tradition about Jesus, which is authentic. I think this is a real happening. It really took place. And uh, since this is a story that contains Jesus' teaching, his doings and teachings, it has authority for us, just as the rest of Scripture does. Now, we know uh, from John's uh, gospel, he tells us in the last chapter of his book, that there were a lot of things that Jesus did that are not included in his gospel or in any of the other gospels. There are a lot of sayings and traditions and stories about Jesus that were in circulation in the early church, which were authentic. Some of them were written down. Some of them were included in the gospel. Some were not. But because they were authentic sayings of Jesus, they had authority. As a case in point, 
In Acts 20, Paul quotes a saying of Jesus, it's more blessed to give than receive, which is not found in the Gospels. But apparently it was in circulation, and Paul quotes it with authority. He bases an argument upon it. And therefore, it's an authentic saying of Jesus and has authority. Now, that's the way I look at John 8. It does not belong in John at this point. At least John didn't include it in his gospel, but it has authority for us. Now, the, the story uh, in, in these older manuscripts, the story occurs in different places in John and even occurs in one instance in the book of Luke. And so we wonder, why was it placed here? I think it was placed here because this is exactly when it did happen. If it was an authentic happening and had to happen sometime during Jesus' lifetime, this is where it fits. John didn't put it in his gospel. He excluded it for some reason. But it fits here, and the early church knew it, and he put it here because it is an illustration of the truth that follows in John 8. As you know, very often Jesus will act in a certain way, and then his discourse is basically a commentary on his actions. And I think John 8, 12, and following is a commentary on his actions with reference to the woman caught in adultery, as I think we'll see in a moment. Now let's look at the story. I hope that doesn't unsettle you too much. I still believe in inspiration of Scripture. I still believe in its inerrancy. I, I just believe that the evidence is against the inclusion of this story in the Gospel of John, but I think it really happened. And therefore, it has authority. Can you live with that? All right. John 8, verses 1. Well, actually, let's start with the last verse of uh, chapter 7, verse 53. Each went to his own home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, sometimes we're told by commentators that uh, this verse is dislocated and uh, this statement, each went to his own home, doesn't fit here. But I think it does. I think he says this with reference to the pilgrims that had come to the Feast of Tabernacles. As I mentioned before, millions of, of Jews came from all over the world to worship at the Feast of Tabernacles, this autumn festival that was so important to the Jews. After the festival was over, they went home. Jesus had no home. It's a real note of pathos here, I believe. As Jesus put it, foxes have holes. Birds have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He had no place he could call home. So he went across the Kidron Valley over to the uh, Mount of Olives, and he rolled up in his cloak. This would be in the autumn, probably October. In the fall, it gets cold in Israel. He had no place where he could warm himself, so he, uh, he rolled up in his, in his cloak, and he slept in the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. This was his custom. The pilgrims were gone, but the residents of Jerusalem knew that that was his practice to teach in the porch of Solomon, and so they gathered again this uh, next day to hear him teach. But he was uh, rudely interrupted. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. You wonder where the man was. Why wasn't he brought before Jesus? The same double standard seemed to apply back in those days. This woman was caught in the act, in the very act of adultery. And the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. You can feel the disdain flowing out from them. The text actually reads women like these. 
Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Right in the middle of his teaching, he's interrupted by the sound of scuffling and shouting, and in they drag this woman and deposit her unceremoniously at his feet. She stands up, probably her hair in disarray, her clothes all rumpled, defiance on her eyes, in her eyes. She was probably very angry and, of course, much embarrassed. There's no indication that they have any concern for her, no compassion for her. She's trash. Moses commanded to stone women like like this, they say. What what do you say? They had her dead to rights. They caught her in the act. She was clearly guilty. There's no way she could plead innocence. And the law of Moses unequivocally condemned uh, adultery. It was a capital offense, capital crime. So she didn't have a leg to stand on. She was guilty. She stood condemned before the law, and the punishment for adultery was, was death. Moses said, stone women like this. What do you say? And chess, this would be what you call a fork. It's a move that uh, positions you on the board in such a way that any other move the other person makes is going to be wrong. They had him, they thought. If he sided with the law, he would separate himself from sinners. He was notoriously the friend of sinners, always compassionate, always on their side. If he agreed that uh, Moses was right and that she ought to be stoned, then he would no longer be the friend of sinners. He would also get in trouble with the Roman Empire because uh, while the Jews believed that adultery was a capital crime, the Romans did not. That law wasn't on their statute books. They had taken away from the Jews the right of capital punishment, so the whole thing was theoretical anyway. If he agreed with the woman against the law, he would discredit himself as a teacher. They could legitimately say he's a lawbreaker and uh, therefore not an accredited teacher in Israel. He's teaching truth contrary to the law. So they had him, they thought. Jesus didn't say anything. He bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. For ages, people have wondered what he wrote. As a matter of fact, a lot of the variants in the manuscripts are, are uh, additions that the scribes made to the text in which they tried to satisfy the reader's curiosity as to what, did, what Jesus said. Some of them will, would say, for instance, after chapter 8, he wrote the sins of every one of them on the ground. Others speculate that he wrote uh, the Ten Commandments on the ground. For myself, I don't think he wrote anything on the ground. The word that's translated right here can also mean to draw or doodle, we would say. I think he was just scribbling in the dust with his, with his finger. I don't think he's writing anything, anything. I think he was biding time. I think he was so enraged by what they were doing. This tragic unhallowing of this woman's womanhood. He was so outraged, he was biding time to get his emotions under control. Remember, he was very much a man, as well as very much God. I think he was angry at what they were doing to this woman. There's no compassion for her. She was just garbage. Something to be used, which in fact is what they were doing. They had no compassion for her, only malice for Jesus. She was the bait that they were using to discredit him. They cared nothing for her. 
And I think that outraged him. And he scribbled in the dust for a while while he got his feelings under control. And he counted on the father to give him the right answer. And when they kept on questioning, they kept pressing him. The verb suggests that they stayed at it. They wouldn't leave him alone. He was bent over, drawing little circles in the sand. They kept on questioning him. He straightened up. He sat up. We know from the text he was sitting down. That was the traditional posture for rabbis. They sat down to teach. He bent over to write in the ground. He straightened up as though to give some sort of judicial decision. And he said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. You know those words. Now some think uh, that he's talking specifically about the sin of adultery and and if not the actual act, then fantasizing about the act. And that's possible, although there's no record anywhere in ancient rabbinic literature that any of the rabbis had ever been charged with adultery. That's just something they wouldn't do. No, I don't think he's talking about that sin. I think he's, he's saying if any of you is sinless, if you've never sinned, then you throw the stone. Because only a sinless person can condemn someone else. See, we all stand condemned for our sins, whether it's adultery or gossip or whatever it is. We all stand condemned. So we don't have the right to throw stones. The text tells us that uh, beginning with the eldest, uh, they began to drift away, melt into the crowd. The older ones first, because they had the longest track record of sin. They well knew how culpable they were, and they... They began to melt away. One remembered that he had to make a telephone call. Another remembered that he had to run by the grocery store to pick up something for his wife. And they turned and, and slowly began to, to leave the crowd. At this, those who heard him began to go away one at a time until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up. He sat up again. And he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She responded uh, calmly and respectfully. No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. And we say, now wait a minute. On what basis can Jesus do that? He clearly believed that adultery was sin. He calls it a life of sin here. He upheld the law. There was no question in his mind that, that adultery was a, was a harmful and uh, destructive practice. He knew the heartbreak that it brings to mates and to children and, and the destructive effect that it has upon society. He was well aware of that. He isn't glossing over her sin. He isn't overlooking her sin. He was well aware of the depth of her, of her depravity, if we can put it that way. But he says to her, I don't condemn you. On what basis? Because shortly after this, our Lord went to the cross and he paid for her sin. When he was hanging on the cross, one of his last words were, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he wasn't asking that question for himself. He was well aware of the answer. He's actually quoting from the Old Testament, one of the Psalms. The next verse answers the question. You are too holy to look upon sin. 
Jesus began to feel the full effects of the Father's wrath against sin at that point. God turned his back on his son and walked away from him. And our Lord felt forsaken. As a matter of fact, Luke tells us that as Jesus approached the cross, he began to feel very heavy, is the way the King James translates it. The word actually means to be away from home. He began to feel homesick. Because as the sin of the world was placed upon him, he felt the Father's withdrawal. And he died for that sin. He died for her sin, for her adultery. He died for your sin. Whatever it is, no matter how heinous it is, no matter how shameful it is, he died for that sin. And all the wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus so we don't have to experience it. And it's on that basis that Jesus could say to the woman, neither do I condemn you. You see... God does not want to throw stones. Do you understand that? This passage is a commentary, I believe, on John 3.17. God did not, send the wor- did not send the Son to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God doesn't want to throw stones. He doesn't want to condemn. He doesn't want to judge. He is the judge, but he doesn't want to. He wants to save. His heart toward us is wholly redemptive. He wants to lift us out of our sin and forgive us and set us on a new path. He wants to set us free. God has a very bad reputation. People think he's stalking around the world with a furrowed brow, upset at all wickedness, ready to judge it at a moment's notice. If it were not for the fact that the Son is pleading for God, uh, pleading for us, interceding for us in God's presence, then God would, would destroy us. That's not at all true. Jesus came to to correct the bad reputation that God has. He is the expression of God himself. God sent the Son not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. What a beautiful picture of the heart of God to see Jesus looking at this woman that everyone else had written off, who had her shame displayed before the whole world, before the whole religious community. And Jesus says to her, I don't condemn you. Leave your life of sin. Now, uh, these gospel accounts, as you know, are all uh, shortened accounts. They're condensed. And we don't know what else happened or what she said, but he must have seen in her a repentant heart. Because repentance is always the first step to gaining God's forgiveness. It's, It's realizing that we are sinful. That a life of sin does separate us from God apart from from Christ's sacrifice and then coming to Christ and receiving forgiveness. I think that she saw in Jesus' face and his eyes her compassion for her. Here was someone who was for her all of her life. Men had used her. They were against her. They were using her in this case, willing to, to embarrass her publicly in order to make their case. This, this had been her history, but Jesus was for her. She saw that. He was on her side. He didn't come to condemn. He came to save. And she saw that. And her eyes pled for mercy. And our Lord saw her heart. And he said to her, neither do I condemn you. Leave your life of sin. Because you see, our Lord not only frees us from the guilt of past sin, but he gives us the power to change our lifestyle. She could leave her life of sin. 
John says, as many as received him, to them he gave authority to be a son of God, and not only to be in God's family, but to act like one of God's children. We have the power to change. As Paul puts it, sin no longer has dominion over us. We may sin, but it's not because we're chained to it. We've been set free. Her chains fell off. Her heart was free. She could go out and, and live a life of faithfulness to her husband. Regardless of her past, she was uncondemned. Now, this, this passage demonstrates the fact that God is for us, but there's a further lesson we need to learn, and it's this. We need to have God's heart for others. We need to ask him for that heart of compassion for, for people that are caught in sin. How, how, how do you feel toward the gay that, that has AIDS? Don't want him around. Terribly a wretched thing to do. Tend to be very disdainful. But do you realize the Father's heart for that person? He loves them. Doesn't condemn them. Wants them to know him. He is the judge. And everyone will have to face the judge. But but as Isaiah puts it, that's his strange work. That's his foreign work. That's not where his heart is. He doesn't want to condemn. He wants to save. He doesn't want to throw rocks. He wants to redeem and set free. How do we feel about a person trapped in sin? How do we feel about someone caught in adultery? How do we feel about ourselves when we're caught in adultery? See, we need to, we need to ask the Father for his heart. We, unfortunately, tend to think of uh, sexual sins as particularly reprehensible. But they're not. They're not the worst sins of the world, in the world. Scriptures are very clear that the secret sins of the heart, so-called spiritual sins, are far worse than the sins of the flesh. C.S. Lewis uh, had a good thing to say along these lines. Finally, though I have had to speak at some length about sex, he writes, I want to make it as clear as I possibly can that the center of Christian morality is not here. If anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity as the supreme vice, he is quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual, the pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, putting people down of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting, the pleasures of power, of hatred. For there are two things inside me competing with the human self which I must try to become. They are the animal self and the diabolical self. The diabolical self is the worst of the two. That's why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute, but of course it's better to be neither. It's easy for us to sit in judgment on those whose sins are unlike our sins, but we forget that sins are sins in God's eyes, and the sins of the spirit, gossip, and, and malice, and an unforgiving heart are far more serious. We have an infinite debt that we owe. If we can't forgive someone else for their sin, if, if we can't be comfortable in their presence... 
even though they're sinful, then we don't understand the extent to which we have been forgiven. We don't understand the extent of our own depravity. That's why Jesus said to these men, if you're sinless, throw a stone. And not one of us can say that. Because if thrones were, uh, stones were to be thrown, we would be on the receiving end of those stones. Now, we do need to be discerning. On balance, we need to understand that we're not to go through life overlooking sin. One of the marks of maturity, according to Hebrews, is that we have our spirits exercised to discern the difference between good and evil. We know that adultery is wrong. And to continue in adultery is what Jesus called a life of sin. We know that homosexuality is wrong. We know that gossip is wrong. We know that greed is wrong. Those are sins. We have to be able to discern the difference between good and evil. That's not judging. When we look at someone and say, what you're doing is wrong. But what Jesus wants us to do is to look beyond the act to the person and and look at them with the compassion that our Lord has for them and with a desire to save rather than condemn them and write them off. See, that's our problem. We want to stone them, want them out of our life. And we forget that when when the stones are thrown... We are just as guilty. We ought to be on the receiving end. So we can judge sin in ourselves and we can judge sin in others. That's simply a matter of discernment, but we should never judge with a view to condemnation. Because God does not want to condemn. Neither should we. We should pray for that heart. Do you realize that God is for you? Do you understand that? Some of you may this past week have been caught in the act of adultery, even. Perhaps not as this woman in such, a, such an obvious manner, but perhaps your mate found out that you were having an affair and the thing is out in the open now and, and you're shamed by it all. And all of us from time to time have, have gone through experiences where our sins have been broadcast to the world and we just feel terribly shameful. Perhaps that's happened to you. Well, do you understand what happened to this woman? Her shame became her glory. The worst thing that could happen to her happened, as far as she was concerned, in a religious community like that, to have her sin find out, found out. Everybody knew what she was. It's the worst thing that could happen to her, but it was the best thing that could happen to her because it led her to the Savior. This is what J.R.R. Tolkien calls a eucatastrophe. Where a story where everything seems to be irrevocably wrong. Everything is going wrong, and then suddenly something happens to make everything go right. That's what happened to her. Her life was shattered. It was destroyed. Perhaps her marriage would come to an end through this. And, and, but this was the thing that, that brought her to the Lord. So if that's where you are, and you feel shamed, and your sin is out in the open, would you know that the Lord's standing there waiting for you to turn to Him? He wants you to come. He doesn't want to condemn. He wants to save. And this week, while you're out in the world with people whose shame is out in the open, would you please ask the Father to give you the heart that our Lord has for them? God did not send his Son into the world to point fingers. God did not send his Son into the world to throw stones. He sent his Son into the world to save. Let's pray. Let's stand together, shall we?
Lord, we all stand condemned, indicted by this story. We're all guilty, if not of this sin, of of other sins, far worse than this one. And we realize that, that there's no way that we can pay for that sin. There's an infinite debt which, which, must be, uh, which must be paid. And we're incapable of paying it. Thank you for assuming that responsibility for us, for going to the cross and paying the price for our sins. And thank you that you've lifted us out of the the terrible grip of our sin and set us free, that like this woman, our chains have fallen off and our hearts are free. We can go forth and serve you. We thank you for that. And we pray also that that we would have the heart of Jesus for people that we we come across this week who are caught in their sin. Help us to to see them through your eyes. Help us to display the compassion for them that you have. Help us to judge their sin aright, but, but keep us from judging them with a view to condemnation. Help us to love them as you love them and lead them into a relationship with you, the one who can forgive them and grant to them power to go on in obedience. Thank you for this lesson, Lord, and for your ministry to our hearts through it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.